What do you do to get the attention of the clients that you want to work with? How do you craft a pitch that stands out whatever it is that you're reaching out to your prospects? Before you can start writing and collect your paycheck, you've got to get the attention of your potential clients. And today's guest for the Copywriter Club podcast is Angie Federico. She shares her musical approach to pitching. And actually, Angie goes a lot deeper than that on the pitch process. So if you're trying to add new clients to your business, you're going to want to listen to this episode. And today's episode is sponsored by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind. And we are actually working on some some renovations to this mastermind experience that we will share soon. Um, And the price is actually going to go up too. So if you have any interest in joining a mastermind and um, getting some one-on-one coaching and connecting with other top copywriters who are incredibly savvy and generous, you can apply today and jump on the wait list. Yeah, the place to do that is copywriterthinktank.com. That should forward you to the form where you can apply. And those announcements, those changes that Kira just talked about, we're going to be talking about them in depth at TCC IRL, the Copywriter Club in real life. If you're listening to this episode before March 28th, 2022, it's not too late to get your virtual ticket. There's actually a handful of actual tickets, but virtual tickets as well. We've linked to where you can get your virtual ticket in the show notes. You'll definitely want to check that out. All right, let's get to our interview with Angie Federico. All right, Angie. So let's kick off with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter? So I kind of fell into it um, a little bit by accident. Shoot, like this started maybe around going on nine years now. Like I I can't believe like that's not a long, long time, but it's also a long time. Um, I was in affiliate marketing first. I basically, um, before getting into copy, I was already in in in-person sales. I used to be an insurance agent. That was fun being 19 years old, selling life insurance, but I was good at it. And I kind of got tired of it though. And I kind of wanted to take things more into like the digital world because I saw other people were making money too. And someone's like, hey, get into affiliate marketing. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's perfect. So I kind of dived into it, not really knowing what to expect. And I sucked. (laughs) I couldn't sell things online like how I could sell in person. And it was frustrating me. So I used to hang out on like Warrior Forum a lot, that SEO platform. And I remember I was just going on there complaining like, all right, guys, so like, what am I doing wrong? I know people are making money with affiliate marketing, but what am I doing wrong? Like, what can I, what what should I do? And one kind soul, and I really wish I remembered their handle, um, but they literally just left one sentence and they said, learn how to write copy, period. And I was like, okay, what the hell is that? (laughs) Um, And from there, I started doing my homework, started doing research. And as I started getting good, I started seeing the sales and affiliate marketing coming in and it was pretty cool. And then I didn't really start taking clients until I ended up somewhere on Reddit. And that's when people were like, Oh, are you, are you open to writing copy for someone else? And I was like, sure. Why not? So it kind of just like fell into it that way. And it was cool because like by the time I was able to like start taking on these clients, I was able to show them like my metrics and my affiliate dashboards and show them like, well, this is what I've been doing for these companies already. So it kind of like helped back me up being a newbie. So I was really grateful for that. And um, over these years, I've just 
been blessed to work with some of the internet's, um, I guess, internet famous influencers. And some of them I cannot mention <laughs> because, you know, NDAs and all that stuff. But yeah, it's been crazy. Like everything that I've just been able to land with the people that I've been able to work with. And now here I am, I mainly just do email. Um, I actually just took a job back with uh, an agency that I left a few months ago. They brought me back because they wanted me to hop back into email. So that was actually really flattering <laughs> when they reached out. Um, and I'm, again, I feel so blessed. I'm grateful. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'd want to go all the way back to the beginning when you started your sales career. So many of us struggle with that kind of a thing, but you were good from the very beginning. What was it that made you good at sales? In all honesty, I always speak from the heart. Like for example, life insurance, right? Like that's hard to sell as a kid. Like maybe now in my thirties, I, I probably have better luck, but it was difficult to do it in, in my teens and early twenties. But I think what made it, um, easy for me to sell at that age was the heart that I put into the product. I have a history of, you know, unfortunate, you know, losing family members and stuff over the years. And that happened way early on in my life. So when I would talk to people, I was able to just delve in on those emotions and just tell them like, look at like, we're never promised tomorrow. Um, and going over like the, the aftermath, like this is what the burden that your family could bear and, you know, just going into it, but really like tapping in on that, and it would get people to really think. So I think that's what made it easy for me being an in-person sales because I was able to really tell somebody um, about the things that can happen with, with when they don't have that product or that service. Can we dig into affiliate marketing? For anyone who's not as familiar with it, could you just talk about like, what, is it, what is it and how do you get into it? Yeah, affiliate marketing, it's basically like you can go, I think Target even has it, like you can go to almost any business and um, like on their website and you can scroll all the way down and you can see if they have like affiliates, um, like affiliates section. And basically you are working in an agreement with them to help them promote and sell their product. And then they kick you down some, some cash, um, you know, some commission for, for doing so. So for me, I did it with web hosting companies. What I was doing at first was basically helping people like put together like a really, really basic like WordPress site just because like I happened to be into WordPress at that time too. And it was easy for me because I'm like, okay, well, you don't have to pay me, but you can sign up for one of these services because you're going to need a web hosting service anyway. And so the client most of the time was like, oh, okay, sure, no problem. So they would buy the service. I got kicked down the commission. And then when I started selling like my copywriting services, it just made it even better. Cause I'd be like, all right, so I'm building this for you, but it's going to be blank. It's going to be naked. Do you want, <laughs> do you want to add some content on there um, for an additional fee? And people are like, well, yeah, what's the point of having a website <laughs> if I don't have content on there? Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what affiliate marketing is though. Like when people would sign up for the service and they pay, they made their payment. I got paid too. Yeah. And affiliate marketing has changed a lot in the last decade. You know, it, I had a lot of friends who did it as a business and then, you know, Google changed a lot of the rules, whatever. But uh, I love that you're talking about this, Angie, because uh, you're going at it one way where you were doing the affiliate thing and then adding copywriting. But there's probably a way to flip this around where copywriters can start recommending affiliate services and get paid for the projects that we're writing because we're either we're helping set up these tools um, or support services, whatever, uh, that the customer is going to be using long-term and get paid long-term for a project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, honestly, if I wasn't like so, so busy, I probably would be 
still doing um, affiliate marketing, but I definitely think that it is something great for copywriters in particular. And again, you know, the two affiliate marketing and copywriting kind of like they just blend in together so well because you can't really do one without the other in that aspect. But I was recommending for a while people who weren't like familiar with the basics of copy. I was even just shooting them over like an Udemy course or something um, because they also have an affiliate program or at least they did the last I checked. And someone was like, wait, so you're getting paid a commission to promote this course. And I'm like, yeah, it's a good course. I've taken it. I, I know what it entails. And I think you're going to find it very helpful. And then that just sparked an idea because they're like, oh, man, like I can get good at this and I can start kicking, um, you know, this course over to people and they can start paying me or, you know, I could start getting paid from the affiliate commissions. So I think that's a good thing to have um, as copywriters. So I would highly recommend it. What, what is it? I think it's called like Commission Junction. There's also a whole bunch of different offers on like ClickBank. Impact, I think, is another one. Yeah, like Zoo. Trying to remember all of them. It's been a minute. Can you share? I don't know if you're comfortable sharing this, but how much at that time were you making from affiliate sales? How did that fit into your revenue? So in affiliate sales, I was making like once I started getting good with like the copy stuff and then I kind of that's when I figured out how to tie it in with the WordPress site thing. I was making about anywhere from like a thousand to two thousand a month just in the affiliate sales. Um, and then that was like combining as well. Like I would make some more if someone was like, yeah, well, I'll take you up on the copywriting services too. Okay. All right. And then you mentioned you realized you needed to learn copy. So you jumped into copy, but what did that look like? How did you improve your copywriting skills? And then how did you also improve your business skills so you could attract clients? I don't really remember like what it was that I exactly did to like get better at writing copy. I just remember, I feel like those people, I watched one, a single YouTube video and now I'm a pro, <laughs> but I just remember watching like YouTube videos. Um, who was it? There was this guy. Oh shoot. What's his name? Oh, uh, he calls himself the lazy ass stoner. And I don't think he posted. It. <laughs> it's so funny. Some like Australian guy. No, but he was really good with like, um, like SEO and copywriting stuff. And I would watch a lot of his content and I just kind of like mimics like what it was that he was doing. Um, and then I started discovering like other copywriters, um, through Reddit, one of my favorites. And I think she's actually a part of this group still is Kaylee Moore. <laughs> Uh, I used to, I used to follow a lot of her stuff. And then there was also another writer. She went by like the brand was like the un, untamed writing, I believe. Uh, I forgot her name, but yeah. So I kind of just like subscribed to their newsletters and I would just pay attention to the way that they write. And I think that's the important thing is when you're, especially when you're first starting out or like you're just trying to improve your skills, not only get the content that's going to teach you how to write copy, but pay attention to the way it's being written. I think that a lot of people miss that. And that's when it kind of like makes it hard for them to, to connect with their writing in a way that, you know, is effective. Yeah. I, I think that's really good advice. I'm curious today, uh, you know, your business has shifted in a couple of different ways since you first started out, but how are you finding clients today? Does it all come through referrals? Do you still pitch? What does that look like? So most of them now is referrals. And a lot of my clients that I work with are long-term clients or like long-time clients clients that I've worked with. But when I am pitching, I'm usually prospecting either on Facebook, Twitter, believe it or not, I've actually never thought to, <laughs> to go on LinkedIn. I know everybody's on there. And I feel like such a, 
like I'm not in with the cool stuff. <laughs> but um, when I'm pitching, it's either like someone that I prospected off of Facebook, or I also use an email tool called snow.io. And I use that to help me find the emails to, um, you know, to business owners. And that way I can get myself in front of them and send them a pitch. And as far as what pitching looks like, I usually open my subject lines with lyrics to popular songs. <laughs> okay, let's talk more. Let's talk more about that. Um, what what else are you doing in those pitches? So when I'm pitching them, like Adele has definitely helped me a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I use uh, lyrics from Hello a lot, and people like find it entertaining. But what I'll usually do is I'll hit them with a subject line, and then in the body, I'm still talking about the subject line, and like for the most part, I'm like. Hey, so um, I thought about using other lyrics, but I felt like that this was more fitting. And I kind of just like have a conversation <laughs> with myself, I guess, before I even touch on like the actual pitching. But I'll eventually kind of just, you know, I guess get them disarmed. I know John Buckin's actually really good about talking that, about that kind of stuff. So uh, if anyone hasn't read his content or isn't subscribed to his newsletter, I would definitely recommend that. But um yeah, so just disarming your your prospect so that way they're just kind of like, okay, what's this person doing in my inbox? And then they're like, oh, oh, that's kind of funny. Oh, yeah, that is pretty interesting. Like saying, you know, maybe open with like a joke or something, obviously, if it's appropriate. And then going in like, hey, so the reason why I'm hitting you up is because I noticed X, Y, and Z about your business. And I was wondering if, you know, you could use some a little uh, like a hand, um, something like that. And then just leaving it off with like looking forward to seeing you or to talking with you. And I always drop a meme and a PS as well. I try to make custom memes for the prospect. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. I like your approach um, in contrast to what John teaches. John's obviously very focused on humor and, you know, his templates and things are very joke heavy, but the lyric approach is in some ways it's even more relatable because I don't have to worry about being funny. I don't have to worry about, you know, is my joke going to connect, but like with a lyric that's familiar to everybody or to most bodies, um, it seems like a pretty easy way to make that initial connection. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you, like, it really is a, a nice icebreaker. Um, <laughs> it's funny, one of the people that I pitched, and they actually became like a really great friend of mine. Uh, when I first pitched him, I said, is it too late now to be sorry? Uh, from that Justin Bieber song. <laughs> and he said that when he saw that in his in his inbox, he was like, did they just use Justin Bieber? And then he was like, wait a minute. And he opened the email and he, and sure enough, I confirmed in there like, yes, these are Justin Bieber lyrics. And he, that just made him laugh. He was like, I hollered. Cause I was like, dude, like nobody does that. No one opens up with lyrics. And obviously like, you don't want to use something from, you know, underground stuff or whatever that nobody knows. You want to use the stuff that everyone knows. And so it's, it, it's a good method and it's works. It's worked every time. So in addition to that, then, as you're thinking about who you pitch, what's the process for identifying your ideal client, maybe even figuring out, okay, uh, you know, what is the lyric that it would, would connect us, those kinds of things? How do you research that on the front end? So I'm pretty much, because I'm an email copywriter, um, I mean, I don't like to say that that's like my only niche because I've done pretty much everything in the funnels. But because I'm an email copywriter, I basically go after a couple of things, um, in a prospect. So one, like if it's an e-commerce brand, I try to 
try to take a look at like what they're doing um, from like an ads point. Like, okay, are they on Facebook? What are they doing in their ads? Okay, I'm going to go on their website now and I'm going to subscribe to their newsletter. And then usually the sad part is um, a lot of people don't pay much attention to their newsletter like they should or like their email list. And that's, that's a, it's been a problem because people are so focused on everything on the front end. They're not focusing on the, the back end, you know, their, um, their nurturing system pretty much, which is the email. So yeah, that's kind of like what I do. Like if it's a business I'm interested in working with, that's, I just go through their funnel until I see that, okay, I signed up for their email list. It's been five days. I haven't received not a darn thing from them. So they need the help. And that's when I dive in and I'm like, Hey, I noticed this. And you know, your email should like, if you're doing email, right, you should be, it should be pulling in at least like 30% or higher in your uh, monthly revenue. So when I start mentioning these things about how like, okay, they're doing everything from the acquisition side of their funnel, but now they shouldn't be neglecting the retention side because that's just as important to keep up their you know, their customer's lifetime value. Angie, can you talk more about the mindset you need when pitching? Because, you know, as you talk about this, you sound confident in your process. And you also have been doing this for nine years. But for a copywriter who might be new in the first year or two, and they haven't pitched a lot, but they definitely need work, what can they do to feel more confident? And, And maybe it's not even confidence, but just to do the thing and start pitching rather than freaking out because they don't have work. Honestly, just do it. It's, I know it's easier said than done, but that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, um, I've, I've met a few new writers recently who were just like, I don't feel comfortable pitching. I don't like pitching because I feel like it, you know, it's, I might come off too salesy. I might come off too cheesy. And I'm like, you know, these are things that you're going to have to learn from. And the only way you're going to learn from these things and get better from the mistakes that you make is by actually going out there and doing it. So I would just say, don't think too much about it. If there's somebody you want to pitch, don't be hesitant. Just go in, take the dive. And if they don't bite, then that's fine. At least, you know, you can learn from that experience. And then once you start getting responses and people who are interested in working with you, then that's how you know that you are, that you're getting better. So can I ask about rejection? I'm guessing that selling life insurance, you learned to deal with rejection pretty early, but a lot of copywriters, as we start to send out pitches, it feels very personal when, when people say, no, not right time, or, you know, this isn't a fit for me, whatever. So do you have tricks for dealing with that? Or is it just something that, um, because of your past experience, it's really easy for you to, to just take those no's and move on? There are times where like, I really wanted to work with like a a business and, uh, you know, they shut me down and I was like, ouch, that hurt, you know, but try not to take it personally. I personally have never had this experience, but I know there are people who made their pitch and the business was completely turned off by it. And, you know, they even exchanged, um, not exchanged, but they dropped some pretty nasty comments about their approach or whatever. And that could really get someone down. But I think it's just remembering like, Hey, like this, it's a, fast paced, uh, industry one, no, you know, a few, a few bad no's doesn't mean that like, this is the end of your career. It doesn't mean that like you're, you're a failure and you should just give up copywriting. It's just a matter of like, okay, like taking the hit, accepting it and then moving on and being just as confident to send out the next pitch to the next person, because that could be your yes. And in all honesty, here's how I look at it. If you're getting rejected by somebody, that's probably someone you didn't want to work with anyway. 
me, if someone can't appreciate my humor and the, like the, the pitches that I send them, if they, you know, call me unprofessional, I've had that happen uh, because I've sent them a, a meme. That doesn't mean that like, I'm horrible. I'm, I'm like, holy cow, I just dodged a bullet because these people clearly don't know how to have fun. <laughs> I don't care. Like if you are Jeff Bezos, I'm pretty sure like, you know, at the end of the day, if you can't appreciate that kind of humor, um, then I don't want to work with you because you sound boring and you sound like you're going to be a headache. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. I'm going to roll two questions into one because I want to dig in deeper to pitching. Can you just share like the reality of it just as far as when you're, when you were pitching earlier on, maybe, you know, how many pitches are you getting out a week? What's, what's realistic? Because I do, we do hear crazy numbers and some people are more intense about this process and will send 50 pitches in a week. And I think sometimes that is intimidating to someone who's like, well, I only sent two, so maybe I shouldn't even do it because I can't send 50 a week. Yeah, that's my first question. Yeah. Oh, man, 50. Like, I've, <laughs> I've never even done that. Um, I want to say, like, if I'm like on the hunt for, for new clients, I would probably send about 10 to maybe 15 pitches a week. And again, that's after me doing the thorough market research of whoever I'm pitching. So everybody that I'm pitching, it's not just like a copy and paste and boom, I'm just, you know, mass emailing people. I'm pitching people that I know I can help and I know what their audience looks like. I know what their pain points are, everything. Like I've already done my research. That's probably the number one thing right there too, is like, if you're going to pitch somebody, make sure you do your research. Don't walk into it just hoping that they're going to say yes, because they're, yeah, they're probably going to tell you no because they have a million pitches, uh, other pitches in their inbox already. But if you're coming in and you're addressing something that's specific to their business, that means that like, one, you already care about the business. And two, it's, they just get impressed because you did your homework. As a follow-up, you shared what you are doing with the lyrics and just you know disarming people. But what do you not do? What is really important to remember and to not do when pitching? Don't open with talking about yourself because this it's an ugly truth, but nobody cares. <laughs> I've seen it time and time and again where someone will like I've been pitched to before and I'm like, okay, let's see what you got. You know, let's, let's take a look at your writing chops. And they just open with like, hi, Angie, my name is so-and-so and I am a copywriter and I do this and I do that. I've accomplished X, Y, and Z. And I'm just kind of like, okay, I don't care. Like, how is that going to help me? This gets tossed around in the copy world quite often, but it's so true when they say you want to answer the questions um, or the question, what's in it for me to your prospect constantly? Because they don't care about you. <laughs> Again, really good advice. That's got to be the most common pitch that we get from people who you know want to be on our podcast or you know want to engage with us. It's all about them and not about uh, how they connect with us or you know our listeners, that kind of thing. So that's that's really good advice um, and a good reminder not to do that ourselves when we pitch. So, Angie, I want to I want to like move on. Okay, so you've pitched. We've got somebody who's agreed to a project. What does your process look like then as an email copywriter? You know, what do you do as far as engaging them, researching, figuring out what's next? How it typically goes is after the pitch, um, you know, someone, they say like, yeah, I'm interested. Let's hop on a call. That's another big thing. Uh, if you're a copywriter and you're afraid to hop on calls, I highly recommend to get used to it. Maybe practice talking to yourself in the mirror or something. And I'm being dead serious because I'm noticing that, a lot of the success that I've had in the past were, was always because I was so willing to hop on a call, like a video chat too, not just because of the pandemic, obviously, but um, I, I've noticed those who are nervous about 
getting on those calls and, you know, it could be so much as like language barriers or something, you know, someone's like not as confident, like verbally as they are in writing, but that's, it's important to, um, to grasp on that, just had to note that. But anyway, so, um, then we hop in a call and I like to go over my market research process with the client on the phone because I want them to know that like whatever information that I am finding and whatever content I am producing for them, that it has intention because it's been well-researched. I was able to study their market, learn, you know, like, you know, the basic psychology and stuff. And that impresses them because they get kind of like this confidence in you where they see what your, what your process is like. And that's when they're like, okay, I'll work with you. And that's actually how I've been able to get like the invoice paid virtually on the spot. (laughs) Um, If not on the call itself, then it's usually like way soon after because the client is so excited to just like get the ball rolling where they're just like, yeah, yeah. Like send me an invoice, like just do it and I'll, and I'll pay it right now because they, they are just so like happy with what your process looks like. Then from there, um, that's when I, you know, invoice gets paid. And by the way, I would also recommend if you don't charge your clients up front right now. Start doing that because you'll notice that it'll kind of filter out like the kind of clients that are going to try to lowball you or ghost you after you've submitted some work. Um, always, to the best of your ability, collect full payment up front. If it's a larger amount, then I would highly suggest to at least collect half and like turn in the work in um, in like segments. Like don't turn in everything 100% without getting paid a hundred percent, if that makes sense. But, um, yeah, then I dive into my market research process and that takes me a couple hours because I really like to like dive in deep. And usually by day three, I will reach back out to the client, let them know what, what I found in my market research. I like to record looms and send that over to them as well. So they can kind of see like what I'm doing in this process on the screen. And yeah, I think communication is really big here as well. Don't collect payment from your client and not talk to them. Like if they have to reach out to you, that's a big no-no. We're halfway through the interview. So let's cut in and talk about a couple of things worth emphasizing. So Rob, what grabbed your attention? So first thing I think let's emphasize the idea of affiliate marketing. This is something that our friend Jared McDonald has talked a lot about, but there's an opportunity for a lot of copywriters to make some truly passive income using affiliates. And there are a couple of different ways to do it. Angie talked about Commission Junction, places like that, um, Impact, Partner Stack, ClickBank. They're all uh, platforms for... Uh, identifying affiliate opportunities and working with um, affiliate companies. But there are other ways to do that as well. And one of those is just in simply recommending different products to the cl- our clients as we work with them, SaaS products, um, theme, things like uh, themes, website themes, better proposals, type form, email providers, there's training, there's all these things that we can help our clients set up. And if you set up a SaaS product in their business so that they're using it month after month, you can collect a royalty for that for month after month, as long as they use it. And so um, just, I think it's worth talking about that as an opportunity as a second stream of income for a lot of copywriters who you know are out there just 
doing the work and not seeing a lot of passive income in their business. Yeah. And I know we asked Angie how much she was making from the affiliate marketing. She said roughly 2K a month. And so, you know, if we think of affiliate marketing as kind of like easy money, um, which that's always nice, then 2K a month is really good. And so this could be a really um, great way of bringing in additional revenue. And so I, I agree with you. It's not something that we typically think about. It's not something I have offered to my clients and and it could be really useful to the client and also really great for our own businesses. Yeah, I think if you're going to do it, you have to start looking at yourself, not just as a copywriter, but you're becoming more of a strategist and a provider of all kinds of solutions. So if your client comes to you and you identify you know, that a certain platform would work for them, let's say that you can help them set up Infusionsoft or um, something like you know, better proposals, whatever that thing is, you can't just write the copy. You'll probably have to set them up as well in order to create that relationship. But if you do it, like you said, it can be very profitable. Yeah. And it gives you a reason to follow up. And oftentimes that's the hardest part for, for some of us, right? It's like, well, I already worked with you. The project ended. I need a good reason to circle back and ask about potential work and other projects. And so if you do have some type of subscription or some type of tool that you've introduced to your client, even like something like Hotjar, then you can go back and circle back to say, how how is that going? I just want to check in to make sure that you're getting the most out of this tool. So why don't we jump on a call and talk about what's working, what's not working, and I'll provide some additional insights from the tool that you're using. And that could be a good way to provide extra value for that client. And then maybe you talk about other potential projects if you want to continue working with that client. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, especially things like email service provider, you maybe help them set up a welcome sequence. Now, what can you use that service provider to do? And products like ActiveCampaign, Entreport, Infusionsoft, they just, there's these massive platforms with all kinds of opportunities that could help out your clients. So again, something worth thinking about in our businesses. We also talked to Angie a lot about pitching, cold emailing. And even though, Rob, we've talked about this frequently on the podcast, and we have some episodes that are solely dedicated to this topic, it, it never gets old, to me at least. I always enjoy talking about it because there's so many different approaches to cold emailing. And so there, I always learn something new. And I think especially with Angie, um, I, I really like her approach and how she disarms people and makes them you know, laugh or smile and uh, through the lyrics that she shares with them and how that's her in, right? She disarms them and kind of charms them with the lyrics and then she puts the ask out and shows how she could help them. And this is something that a lot of writers struggle with. Like we, you and I review a lot of cold email drafts and oftentimes they start the wrong way. They start, they're very me focused and here's who I am and here's who how I'm going to help you. And Angie's approach does work well. So if you're working on your own cold emails, I would definitely take some, some of her tips that we discussed. Yeah. She does some things really well. She talks specifically about using humor to you know disarm the person that you're talking to. That can be particularly effective. I think back on what I think is the best pitch that we ever received. And it's very funny. It's, you know, a lot of self-depreciating humor and it worked. You know, we ended up connecting with that person and 
Nikita, Nikita, when she sent us a, a pitch. And the funny thing is, it wasn't even asking for anything. She just wanted to establish a relationship, which is the very best kind of pitch because, yeah, she was humorous. Uh, it, it made us curious. We reached out, we established a relationship. And, uh, you know, she's done some amazing things in her business and we've been able to work with her. But humor is awesome you already mentioned, you know, not opening by talking about yourself. There's so many of those that we see, you know, here's what I can do for you kind of stuff. And I, I just like that Angie's approach is a little bit more custom. Uh, you know, even if she could get into knowing like a favorite song of somebody that she's pitching and use that, that would be a, a, a step farther than what she's doing, I think. But um, she's got intent behind what she's doing. And she's not just throwing out the same pitch to 20 20, 25, 30 people uh, hoping for the best. She's actually putting some time into it. So uh, I like her approach. Yeah. And she said that she was reaching out to roughly 10 to 15 people or businesses a week and that she was fully researching them. And, you know, she recommended that we do our research. So I really liked the way that she would subscribe to their newsletter and go through their sequences or their, you know, find out that they do not have a sequence in place and check out what's happening on the back end of the business before she kind of swooped in and save the day. She actually had legitimate reasons and was useful by saying, hey, I noticed this. And I think that's almost the best approach to these emails. It's just like, here's what I noticed. And doing your homework so it's not a surface level observation. It's something that's deeper than that, that most people do not notice unless they have a level of expertise and they're paying attention and they're investing that time into it. And so again, if, if this is something that you're working on, spending that extra time to notice what's happening on the back end of a business could really set you apart. Yeah, I like the here's what I noticed approach because oftentimes if you're sharing that with your prospect, they're going to come back and say, uh, or at least in the back of their mind, they're thinking, yeah, I've been noticing that too, or I've known that that's been a need for a long time in my business. And they start to realize that it's not going to get fixed without some help. So I think it could be a great approach. And you can say something like that. Hey, I noticed this without criticizing. And I think that's where we've talked about that before, but like this is where it can quickly go wrong if you start to criticize the person, the business, um, when you say, I've noticed this. I've noticed how bad your headline is. I've noticed how your website is terrible. Yeah, those don't work. Right. Yes. So don't do that. Another thing that I noticed is, or sorry, let me do that again. Another thing I want to emphasize, and this was a question that I asked Angie about, but just the dealing with rejection. And it's been a long time since we've really talked about this on the podcast, but getting told no a lot is part of the process of doing a lot of pitches. There's just, that's just the way it works is people are going to say no. And you have to realize that if you are going to pitch, that being told no is not personal. It doesn't mean that the pitch is bad. It doesn't mean that you can't help them solve an actual problem. It just means the timing's not right. They're not in a position to say yes, and it's not personal, and you cannot let that hold you up. In fact, you almost have to make a game of it. I'm going for the number and not for the yes. And if I can hit my 10 pitches or my five pitches or my one pitch this week, it doesn't matter if it's a yes or no, because what the success is, is in making the pitch and not in having somebody say yes. Let's jump back into the interview and hear this step-by-step -step breakdown of Angie's sales call process. Okay. So can you just talk through 
that conversation on that initial discovery sales call, you know, you, you mentioned that you share your process and they're impressed and they want to pay you right away. But can you actually treat us like a prospect and just talk through what you would, you know, your normal spiel and like what you'd normally share on that call? I'll get them on my laptop. I'll share the screen with them and I'll just be like, okay, so I want to walk you through a couple of things that um, are going to help me get this done for you. And I'll go over like my, um, my framework. I have like, it's an hour and 20 minute market research thing that I just made for myself as I've learned. Um, but yeah, and I'll walk them through it and show them what kind of, what kind of questions I'm going to be answering that I'm going to be like looking to answer based on my research. Pretty much what I do is I'll go on like Quora, I'll go on uh, Amazon reviews, I'll go on Reddit, all over the internet. And I'll look for a lot of things that are going to that I can like take note of. Um, things that I'm looking for in particular are like expressions, like what are people commonly saying about like a pain point or their desire. Um, and I'm noting those down. And I'm also because you know, we're trying to dive into their emotions. And then from there, I'm also looking to find out from the business. Okay. So now that I found out everything about your market, let's talk about your business. Um, what's the sizzle to your business. So like, you know, like Joseph Sugarman has said, like, you're never selling the steak, you're selling the sizzle. So what's the business's why, why are you unique compared to other competitors? Who are your competitors? What are they doing that you could be doing? And what are they doing that you are better off not, uh, copycatting? Yeah. So once I walk them through all of that and they see my documents, they see what notes I'm taking and how I'm taking them and where I'm getting this information from, they're just kind of like, whoa, that's awesome. Do you have a secret for taking that information then and then um, applying it to the work that you do? So one of the problems that I see that happens with a lot of research is we find all of this amazing stuff but nobody wants, you know, a 1500 word email, you know, it's, we've got to narrow it down to two or 300 words, sell the click, maybe it goes on a sales page, that kind of thing. But how do you identify what's the stuff that you're going to use? And what's the stuff that's not as helpful? I love addressing pain points. You can hit them in the gut with that because like, yeah, you could bring up desires and give them what they want. Like, Hey, do you want whiter teeth? You know, like you could do that. But I feel like when you're addressing a specific pain point um, from the get go, like right in uh, I hate this word, but like in the hook or like the lead in to a pitch um, or, you know, I guess what, like an offer email or something that you're writing for a client. Yeah. Hitting them with like the pain points. So like, instead of saying like, Hey, do you want whiter teeth? It's like, are yellow teeth killing your confidence type of thing? Um, is it hard for you to smile at your job or is it hard for you to meet or to engage with people because you're afraid that they're going to judge and laugh at your smile well, once you open your mouth or whatever, you know? So something like that. Um, that's what, what, I, what I usually go for. Okay. I want to jump back into what you shared about communication with clients. This is something, you know, we all know is so important, but it's also talk about a pain point. You know, when you mentioned if your client's reaching out to you first about anything, you're doing it wrong. And I, you know, I can think back to a project where that happened to me. Many of us can. So can you talk a little bit about your expectations for client communication and client experience throughout a project, what you expect, what you do, what's critical? Yeah, so what I expect from the clients, and I also communicate this from the get-go as well, just saying like, hey, so I'm very like reachable. So um, if I feel comfortable, I'll even give the client like my phone number. That's always kind of tricky, so just be careful of doing that. But um, yeah, I, I try to make make it known from the 
from the start that I am fully reachable. And what I ask of the client is to, you know, give me the same respect. Um, because I have personally encountered situations where I was 100% at the top, I was communicating um, at every milestone and just, yeah, I was on top of it. But the client wouldn't get back to me for days. Like if I needed some information for something that maybe I didn't get before and I'm hitting them up and I'm like, yo, I, I need this so I can continue working on this. And then they don't get back to me. And then what ends up happening is like later on, they're like, oh, why is this project taking forever? What's going on? And it's like, well, I need this information. I sent you an email. <laughs> I messaged you on all social platforms that we're connected on and I haven't heard from you. So it kind of like turns into like a sour relationship because of that. So I would definitely say like, um, what my expectations are for the, like from the client is just to be like, meet me that 50, 50, like meet me halfway. So that way we can get this done successfully without any delays. Um, and then as far as like, like the milestones and stuff, again, I want to say if it's like a longer project, definitely want to check in every like two or three days. Um, ideally I would like to be in like close communication, like interacting with them daily, but I also understand that like people are busy. So I think like two or three days, giving them solid updates, um, to keep that confidence that they had in you from the, from the beginning, um, really is, is so important. And Angie, when a project wraps up, you're done, you've done a good job, the client's happy. Do you do anything specific with that to add it to your portfolio or use it um, to you know, attract new clients? What is the after the project work that you do? Yeah. So another thing I also communicate with the client is because I do like to show off my work. And so I'm you know, getting their permission early on to be able to like display it. Some of them, I, you know, like you can't, like there a business is going to make you sign an NDA and like you're legally, um, you're legally not supposed to mention any of the work, but, um, for the most part, for the clients who didn't make me sign an NDA and they understand like that I'm proud of my work, I clean it up if they do, if they would rather me not mention the business name at least. So I'll clean up the, like the email or like the ads that I wrote or whatever. And then I'll stick it onto a, a Google doc. Um, it's funny. I'll explain that in a second. I'll stick it onto a Google Doc and then use that as my way to showcase my work for future clients. And can you just share a little bit more about um, where you are today, business-wise? You know, what are what do the projects look like? I know you mentioned email, but you do many different things. What are typical rates? Um, if you're comfortable sharing that, yeah. So I, I do have a lot of clients that ask about like hourly rates. And I know that's kind of like the conversation has always been about hourly rates, like why you should or you shouldn't do that. But a lot of times like clients, you know, they don't know our world. They're, they're already busy with other, th other things. They don't really get like why we don't like to list out hourly rates. But um, for me, typically, like if I had to put a number on it, it would be like $85 an hour. What does that look like month to month for you? Is it you know, charging hourly, but are you working on different projects? Do you have retainers? How do you structure the business today? As of recently, I had, I had to like jump out of the freelance life because now I'm, I'm working again. But month to month, it would look like not so much retainers. That is something that I admit, openly admit that I kind of had a problem with is getting retainer clients. But the thing is, the interesting thing is it's, so even though I have a lot of one-off projects, it always turns into like someone needing my services again a few months later, but not like back to back. So, I mean, it still it turns out being consistent work for me, but not in a retainer way, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, so typically with my clients, I want to say on average, before taking back this job, 
on average, I'm looking at about like five to eight K a month, just in what I'm doing. And I've, again, narrowed things down to just email. I was doing the full funnel for a while. Like I was doing Facebook ads, opt-in pages, lead magnets, and then the email, but it was getting too much for me. And I started, you know, it kind of started to take a toll like on my, on my mental health. So I kind of had to drop that and just keep everything as email. And then also like specifically looking for people who right now I've been working with a lot of life coaches. So with them on average, if they're charging at least 10,000 or more for their services, that's someone that I want to work with because I can help them out. Whereas like, I probably wouldn't go work for like a, like a startup, like brand new e-commerce store. You know, they, they're not even hitting like a thousand in, in monthly revenue yet, or they're not even spending at least like anywhere from like a thousand to 2000 in ad spend and things like that. Like I, I, I typically like to work with people who are already established and they're just looking to scale. So Angie, earlier on, you mentioned the agency that reached out to you to, you know, help with emails. Can you talk a little bit about working with agencies and what that's like, how it has, um, how it's different from the normal freelance stuff that you would do as you approach an agency project? Yeah. Agency life is busy. I love it, which is why I went back, but it is busy. Um, these guys are the second agency that I've actually ever worked for. Uh, previously I worked with another, um, I call it an empire because the, the guy, the influencer who runs it, like he's very, very well known, but, um, the, yeah, agency life is very fast paced and it's very call heavy sometimes because there may be, depending what the services that are offered, um, with the agency, like you'll have like ad zombies, right? Like those guys, they only, they only take care of Facebook ads, um, or other, you know, like Facebook, like social media ads and stuff. Whereas like you have other agencies, they offer like the full, the full service where like they offer email ads, landing pages, uh, sales letters, all of that good stuff. But yeah, I think for anyone who hasn't worked agency life and you're d- wanting to dive in, it's very demanding, um, very busy. And you have to be able to take like the constructive criticism because everything is always on the line with an agency. So like if you mess up with something or, or if copy is not being, um, if it's not like being produced efficiently, or if like you end up under working under a copy chief and you know, like you can't get your, your copy to pass the chiefing, then, you know, you have to be able to handle the pressure. Why did you go back to agency life? Um, how did you make that decision? Well, I initially left because I, I personally felt like I wasn't able to keep up between like what I already have for freelance clients. And then what I was also doing with the agency. So I left, um, but then they, when they approached me again, they were just like, Hey, so, um, we've been seeing your stuff around still. And, you know, we missed having you here. And it was, it was very nice. It was very, I, I'm so grateful. And they came back and they were like, well, we brought back email because the agency that I was with, they had actually taken that service out because we were focusing more of, um, we we're focusing more on like ads and everything. And they were like, we brought it back. And, you know, we thought we all think that the perfect fit for this uh, position would be you to come back as an email copywriter. And I was like, yeah, actually like email is my true love. Like that's, I'm, I'm down to do it. And so they, you know, they went over the benefits with me and then me just remembering like, working with the team that I had, I think that's also really important is when you're doing the agency life, you need to be able to like work with people who you feel confident, like in your bones that you can get through the trenches, like fight in the trenches together with them. You don't ever want to work anywhere that you feel like anyone's working against you. And that's exactly what that team 
has done for me in the past. I remember like if, if I was down with something, they were right there to, to have my back. So remembering all of that good stuff. And then plus, you know, the new benefits that I was being offered um, just by coming back, I was like, okay, I can't say no to this. <laughs> yeah, I love opportunities like that. And I definitely miss the days that I was working in an agency, it's, it's such a fun environment, but it's not all fun. I mean, you mentioned that you have to be able to take feedback. Are there other negatives that come along with the agency life or is it all positives? With agencies, they can be very, I guess what, like turn and burn, um, through the people who work there because, you know, the downside is if you get to a point where you can't keep up, they will let you go. And they kind of have to because it's, you know, your, your work and your performance, that's very critical on how well they do. So it's it's understandable. But yeah, the, the thing that I didn't like at, um, at a different agency that I worked at a few years ago was be like the, the turnover for the employees was like insane. You have a whole full team of like media buyers. Um, they're the guys who are behind the Facebook ads and all that stuff. Um you'd have a whole team of media buyers that you knew like one month. And then by the next month, the entire team is completely different because they just like, especially media buyers, they have a lot of pressure on them. And then same thing with copywriters, you know, like one time I was on a team of like eight or nine writers and four of us out of the writers were copywriters. And it got to the point where I was the, I I was the only copywriter. (laughs) It was, the, it was to the point where everybody else, they were more like blog and content writers. And then me, my position, I was the only copywriter on the team because one, they couldn't find anyone to fill the other positions that were lost. And then two, the other people just couldn't perform. And I was kind of like, oh, and so I kind of, I would say like a big negative for, for working um, at some agencies is you do feel that pressure because there's such a high turnover usually for most agencies that you're just constantly like, okay, am I going to have my job tomorrow? <laughs> How do you manage that pressure and, and stay sane? And um, how do you manage that day to day? A lot of planning. And I don't just mean like, you know, writing down like a little to do list for anything. Like I do, I like to plan, like map out my weeks. And that's actually one thing that I've learned um, that's helped, been extremely helpful to me while working at this current agency. And um, these guys are amazing. I love them. But um, yeah, mapping out my week and literally just noting down everything that I need to get done, um, listing out like a, like what your needle movers are going to be for the, for each day and for each week. And so basically when you're mapping out like your, your week like that, um, usually want to start on, on Sunday and map it out Monday, Monday through the next Sunday, but you want to add things on there and like ask yourself, okay, like, does this need to be here? For example, today, you know, I, I, I'm going to write for an email account and okay, cool. What, why am I writing this email though? Because it's going to help the, the, you know, the client accomplish X, Y, and Z. Okay. Yeah. This needs to be here. So I add that on there as like part of my needle movers, but, um, to manage the stress that helps. And also meditating, holy cow, meditating does help even just for 10 minutes out of the day. You could do it in the morning. I like to do it in the middle of the day just because like it's middle of the day. But meditating, I think, is just so important to help you manage any kind of stress, but especially agency life stress. Okay. So tell us more about how you meditate. I When I try to meditate, it doesn't usually go very well. I've got all that noise in my brain. I have a hard time quieting it down or even sitting still. So how what do you do to make it work for you? It really is in the breathing. I get it though, because like there, there's a lot of noise like in my head too, for sure. But I think when I'm focusing more on the breathing, I'm focusing on my posture and I'm focusing on just like trying to like get into my Zen. 
putting all your focus literally in that activity, like just like dropping everything. I know that's hard. It's, it's really, really hard, but it also takes, you know, it takes a, a few days for you to get into a, a habit. Um, but once you finally are able to just focus on your breathing, focus on your posture, focus on just kind of shutting everything out for a few minutes, it gets easier. I, it's kind of hard for me to explain. <laughs> I meditated yesterday for the first time in Woo. probably a year. <laughs> Wait, tell us about the life-changing effect that that's had, Kira. I, I had a great I day. I did I did all the right things yesterday. I like woke up at the crack of dawn, did brain FM, meditated, read, great day. And then today I didn't do any of it and didn't sleep last night. So, you know, day to day, but it did it did help me. So um, I'm gonna get back into that. And Angie, as we start to wrap, I just am curious, you know, if you like you said, you've been in this for nine years. Um, you've done so much with your business and you've learned so much. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give Angie nine years ago? The advice that I would give myself would be don't overthink it. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I would, especially early on, like even though I had the confidence that I could, like my copy could perform, um, based on like the sales I was making, you know, with just like the affiliate dashboards and stuff, I constantly had like that, um, what is it? Like imposter syndrome where I was constantly doubting myself because there were, there were points where I would hate what I, what I've written so much. And when I turned it into the client, I had all this anxiety because I'm like, oh, crap, like, is this really going to perform for them? Like, I, I don't know. It was, it was really strange, but I, I feel like a lot of people can relate to that feeling. And I think it's just, we need to remind ourselves don't think about it too much. Like don't get so caught up. Don't let imposter syndrome take you over. Um, because when you worry about it, it just, it, it makes it harder to write. It makes it harder to write good stuff, but also it, it just takes a toll on, on your mental health. So I think, you know, talking to me nine years ago would be like, Hey, don't stress. Like your stuff is good and wait until you start seeing the numbers to start judging yourself. <laughs> So Angie, I know you said you're really happy with the position you have in your agency. So maybe there's not a good answer to this question, but what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, I'm still, I'm still like, like actively taking clients. Um, I did have to put a lot of stuff like on hold, but as far as like what's next, to be honest, I'm not really sure because of the agency right now. I, I wasn't intending on going back. I didn't think that they would, you know, I left. I, I thought they were just going to be like, all right, you're exiled. <laughs> so now that they've kind of come back into my life, I'm like, okay, uh, things, there, there needs to be a, a couple shifts going on. So I'm, I'm still planning that out in my head. <laughs> it's all serendipity, letting things sort of work out as, as they do. Yeah. So Angie, if somebody wants to connect with you um, or, you know, just get to know you better, find out more about you, where should they go? Facebook. I'm all over. I'm all over Facebook. Um, I, I feel like such a dinosaur when it comes to like other social media platforms. I'm not nearly as active anywhere else than um, I am on Facebook. So anybody who wants to connect, I'm always down for new friends and to chat. I post a lot of memes. <laughs> uh, that's pretty much what keeps me happy and sane. Also, oh, if you guys want to talk about sanity? Memes, memes, memes. memes. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm always. Uh, open for conversation and it helps people out if they need it or need advice. I'm down. <laughs> I know you pop into our Facebook group quite a bit, uh, sharing all kinds of different things. So uh, people can find you there as well. Yeah. If I'm ever like, if I'm ever like not active, it's usually because I got banned because I posted like 
something like too extreme as far as memes and stuff. <laughs> so it's probably the only time, but I'm always available on like Messenger. Well, we appreciate you, Angie, and um, appreciate you giving us your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. It was a pleasure to finally be on here. <laughs> Before we wrap, let's talk about a couple more things that stood out. So I know we went pretty deep into Angie's sales call process and what I loved about it immediately is how she she has a format. She has her, her own process to her sales calls where she actually talks about her research process. And when we asked her, you know, just to break it down for us, she talked about how she shares her screen. And we kind of, we glossed over it quickly and talked about like really the substance of what she is sharing with them. But to me, that stood out because I don't think most of us share the screen on the sales call. I know I don't. Um, I typically am just, you know, in a Zoom room looking, staring at them. Um, and so I like the idea of some type of presentation. And I don't know how formal she she gets with this presentation. I don't think it's formal, but she shares a screen a screen of her process to show them what she does when they work with her. And clearly like Angie's having a lot of success with her sales calls, which she talked about, but I think this is something that we could do rather than just saying, I have a research process, which we all typically say, breaking it down one by one and then showing it on the screen, like how you're actually doing it could go a long way. I like this idea because there's so many things that you can share. You know, maybe you have a Gantt chart that shows the progress and the due dates and where something happens and where the next thing is due. Or maybe you share your process framework and you know each step of the thinking process and the work process that you go through and step them through piece by piece. I just I have never shared a screen on a sales call or on a prospecting call that I can think of. And as I, you know, as you noted, as I'm thinking about it, this actually could be a secret weapon. If you've got a really well-designed two, three, four slides that walk through process, deadlines, show an example or case studies, it almost becomes a sales webinar in a way. Yeah. And I think you could do that. And I'd love to test that, you know, just put some slides together. For me, I'd feel more comfortable doing that because I don't really that's just more my style. Um, but I think you could also keep it a little bit more casual and even just jump in and show an Amazon review and give it, show an example of it to say, this is what I do. And then I go over to Reddit and I do this and here's why. And so, um, just the fact that you're even doing it and sharing your screen and showing this process will set you apart. Um, and I think a lot of times we assume that our prospects understand the research process. And when we say, you know, I go in and do some um, uh, voice of customer, you know, data mining. We we kind of say that, but they don't know what it is half the time. And so she's spelling it out for them and getting them really excited about it. You know, just talking about why this is valuable to them, so that they are so excited for you to jump in and do it for them, and they also feel confident because they get to understand the process. And it's clear that you've done this before because you know what you're doing, and you can show them that you've done this before. Yeah. Another thing related to the sales call that Angie shared, and this might've been in the first half of the interview, but which she was talking about actually practicing the sales call. I think so many of us just jump on the call and let it happen. And the idea of really gaming it out, practicing it, even using a mirror as you step through certain parts, especially asking for money, which is a really good idea because you need to be comfortable when you're saying, hey, it's going to be $5,000. You need to make it sound like you're comfortable with it 
not throwing, uh, you know, it could be as high as or being wishy-washy about it, which then invites your customer to negotiate with you. Instead, you need to be practiced. You need not to be slick, but to be practiced and to know what you're going to say and to be confident about how you're saying it. And I, again, really good advice. It's great advice. I don't think I'm going to use that piece of advice. You're going to use a mirror. You've got to use <laughs> I don't. I just don't see myself using the mirror, but I think it is great advice. And I think the fact that, you know, Angie's just talking about practice. It takes practice with everything she talked about, like whether it's sending a cold email it's practicing, iterating, updating, and, and improving. And whether it's talking in the mirror, which could work for you, or it's getting on as many sales calls as you can, even with friends and family, um, so that you can walk through it and improve. That's the important part. We also talked about communication with clients. And this stood out to me um, because <laughs> Angie, Angie kind of hit on you know a pain point for me. And I mentioned that oftentimes like I haven't always communicated well with my clients. I've gotten better over the years. Um, but in the past I wasn't a great communicator. And so she shared that for longer projects, she will typically send updates every two to three days. She'll kind of just, you know, say hello and give an update. And I really like that. So for me, when I'm working on the long-term project, I like to check in at least twice during the week. And so Mondays and Fridays are typical for me where I'll send a Voxer message and just say like, hey, here's where we are with the project. That flow of twice a week usually works. And sometimes I may end up sending more updates. We may end up talking more frequently, but at least I know, you know, at the minimum, I'm connecting twice a week to share status updates. So my clients aren't ever wondering what's happening. And, and in some ways, like I'm not wondering, it forces me to kind of sit down and figure out where, what is the status update? And so that is so important to have some type of structure there for communication. It doesn't have to be two to three days, but whatever works best for your business so you're not winging it as you communicate with clients. Yeah, I think having a plan here is the important part because I think oftentimes we'll start into a project and we think, oh, we'll check in when there's something to share. And then that time starts to grow and now it almost becomes odd to check in or uncomfortable because it's been so long since you talked. And so having a plan where it's like every Monday I'm going to check in or every Friday or both like you do, or just at this part of the project, as soon as I finish, you know, these three interviews, or as soon as I finish writing the headlines or whatever you have to do to fit it into your schedule by systematizing it and making it part of your process, you make the project less weird. And then it's so much easier to get the second project or the next project because the working relationship isn't strange or strained. Yeah. And maybe, you know, if you're wondering, well, what do you say when you send an update? Um, for me, I just share purely like what's happening. So if it's a Monday update, it's like, well, here's what's happening this week. And then I always end it with like, I'll check back in on Friday. Um, or if it's a Friday update, it could just be like, here's wh where we are in the project. Here's what's happening next week. Um, here's what I need from you. It's just, I mean, it could be super short and I keep mine pretty short. Um, but again, just, I think the fact that someone is hearing from you and opening that channel and not MIA gives that vote of confidence. And I think it can make the next step of the process so much easier. You know, if you're reaching out to your client and you're saying, expect the first draft by Thursday, then on Thursday, when you deliver it, it's really easy to set up the next step. Or, you know, if I'm saying expect the next draft by Thursday, then you send an invitation to a call so that you can share, present that with them 
they're expecting it and they can make room into the schedule. It just makes a lot of things easier. Yes. And we also talked with Angie about um, her ideal clients. And it stood out to me because when she was talking about who she wants to work with, she mentioned specifics. Like she was like, I know I work best with coaches who are selling $10,000 services and are established and looking to scale. And she was so clear, not just about, you know, their um, profession, but also how much they're charging. And probably she has an idea of what they're making financially too. And that's something that we've been talking more about in the accelerator and how to start to identify the right audience and your niche based off the offers and how much they're charging. Because she knows that that's the best client for her because now they can afford her services. But if they're not selling at that level, then they probably aren't a good fit and aren't quite ready for her services. So, you know, just that clarity she has around her ideal client um, is something that, um, you know, we all kind of aim for. And so focusing on the, the service and offers and the pricing may help. Yeah, going along that same thing, talking about the clients that Angie's work with, we we definitely went into some detail about agencies as a client. And last week's episode was uh, all about working at an agency. Jason Picard shared, you know, the ins and outs of what that looks like on the inside. And Angie, in working with agencies from the outside as a freelancer, offered, I, I think, a lot of perspective on that as well. And they can be really good clients from the outside. You know, you can get great criticism from people who are doing really good work, but there is pressure. There's a lot of pressure to perform and they have the client relationship. And so there, you know, you may not be speaking directly to the client or if they feel like what you do isn't up to the agency standard or what they're expecting, you know, you may have to do some rework. So there's, there's good and bad to that, but, what Angie shared about agencies as a client may be useful to somebody who's thinking, oh, I'd actually like to work with agencies or make that my niche and know what it takes to do that successfully. It's a great choice to have. And it's cool that writers like Angie can make that choice and have those options on the table. Like I could I could work for this agency full time, or I can continue to focus on my other clients and building my own business, or I could do a combination of the two. And so that choice is always nice to have because depending on what you need at the time, it, it can change. And so I like that we have more options as writers. Um, of course, when I heard, you know, Angie was upfront about the fact that it's fast paced, it's demanding, it's performance driven. You know, when I heard all that, I was like, oof, like not me, not now, but that's also really great for people who just want to jump in and they want to get that constructive criticism. They want to collaborate. They want to grow quickly and get that hands-on experience. Like that, that could be great for you right now. So I think it's just going into it with your eyes wide open to know what you need and what you're looking for and how it's going to help you and your career. And agencies run the gambit from, you know, easy to work with, hard to work with. They're just like any other client. Yeah, they definitely have things in common and they are high pressure and you've got to perform. But, you know, just because one agency isn't a fit doesn't mean all agencies aren't a fit. And you may be able to figure out a way to, you know, have an agency or two in your back pocket or as retainer clients just to, um, you know, help you grow as a copywriter and to create good work for your own portfolio. Yes. And we also talked about how Angie maps out her weeks to help her 
just focus. And I really liked the way that she talked about it's such a simple thing. I mean, mapping out your week and looking at the week ahead isn't something new or revolutionary. But the way Angie does it and the way she talked about it as a needle mover and the way she thinks about it, you know, we kind of heard the way that she was thinking about it and thinking about, okay, what's really going to help me the most? What's going to move the needle? I liked that approach. And it's something at least I needed to hear because I often will just jump into the day and focus on the day ahead, but I won't think about the week ahead and like what is going to be the most significant thing I can do this week and making sure you prioritize that and thinking a lot bigger. And so whether, you know, Angie's doing that in her own business or at the agency, it's clearly like part of what is um, helping her get the results that she's getting today because she's thinking bigger and she's thinking about what is most critical. Yeah. As Angie was talking about that, and even in other conversations that I've had with her, not on the podcast, you know, texts back and forth, whatever, I just get a really good sense that Angie is treats her business as a total professional. And it's all about getting the work done, getting it done well, and showing up as a professional. She's not dabbling. She's not playing around. She's not seeing if this thing is going to work out. She knows that it's a business. And I think her approach to scheduling out her week just shows how she does it. Also, Angie talked about meditation. And I know you mentioned, you know, um, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like you said you struggle with meditation. Is that fair to say? Totally fair. I, I wish that I were a meditator. I sit down and try to do it. And I, I don't know, it's, I focus on my breathing. I've tried mantras. I, you know, I, I'm just not good at controlling. I just, I don't know if it's, a, I have too many ideas or maybe I just don't sit still. Well, I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm terrible at it, but you're, you're not bad at it. No, I am bad. And I was listening. So when <laughs> Rob and I add this commentary to the podcast, we sit down and we listen to the episode again. And so I was listening to this episode again this morning and I got to the part where I'm like, oh yeah, I meditated yesterday and I woke up early. I did all my morning rituals. I, um, I was just like so full of it and so obnoxious. And I just want to apologize because it's, oh, I, that was true. And I had a really good morning that day and I did not lie. But since then, I have not had those types of mornings. So I just want to keep it real and like, yeah, I, when I do have meditation mornings, the day goes well. I would like to do more of it. For me, I have found that when I go running, that is my form of meditation and that works well for me right now. And so I have been running and then my day is great. Like that, that helps me. But I just wanted to clear that up because I, I listened to myself and I was like, I am so obnoxious. I just like, I don't meditate every morning. I need to just keep it real. So sorry about that. Uh, okay. So we're both terrible meditators, but we both, you know, in our, we find that thing in our exercise, you know, when I'm on my bike and I'm just, my legs are, you know, up and down and up and down and up, that becomes meditative to me too. So that, that works for me in a way that I can't sit in a chair and focus on my breathing or focus on, you know, a, a spot and keep my attention on that one thing without drifting. It's, it's much easier if I'm involved in, in an activity like, like on the rowing machine or on my bike. Right. It's that rhythm and repetition. And that's for running for me. I just go in circles. Like I am just going in circles and I'm not even exploring new parts of the city. Typically I'm just like running laps. And, but I like that because it's, it's not interesting. It's just kind of, it allows me to, to think clearly. So 
anyway, we all have our form of meditation. Just it's figuring out what works best for you. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you liked what you've heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or you could share this episode with someone you think might like it, or both. You could do both. Yeah, why not do both? If you've come to the end of this episode and you want a little bit more, check out episode six with Luke Trazer about copywriting at a small agency. Or you can check out last week's episode about working in a big agency, which we covered in depth. And if you want to know more about pitching, one of the many episodes that we've talked about that with or on was with Chris Collins. That's episode 223. And he goes into some depth on the ins and outs of cold pitching. And don't forget to check out TCC IRL. There's still time to get your virtual ticket. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to 